Welcome to American Indian Living, a program developed by the Native Education and Health Initiative to improve and enhance the health of people throughout the Native communities. American Indian Living is hosted by Dr. David DeRose, a board-certified specialist in both internal medicine and preventive medicine. Dr. DeRose has a wide range of experience with Native health issues, and he's ready today to help you learn more about your health. Here's Dr. DeRose. Welcome to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're recording interviews from the beautiful venue of Keavanui in Molokai, the island of Molokai in Hawaii. We have been recording segments and programs here from this beautiful location. We are recording in January of 2020, and if you don't know much about Hawaii, this is the rainy season. So. We've been getting a lot more rain here, but that does not seem to have dampened the spirits of the participants, nor of the two people sitting across from me. One of those people is Kingston. Kingston is not yet one year of age, so we're not going to hear too much from him unless he decides to chime in. He is smiling at us. You can't tell that on the radio. Next to him is Jessica. Jessica is one of the team members of this exciting intervention. Jessica, tell us a little bit about who you are and how you came to be part of this program. I am 62% Hawaiian, a little bit of German, English, and Portuguese. So I have a, a lot of next to me, and I wanted to changed uh, lifestyle I was doing because I was on a verge of being diabetic. And so when Mercy offered this course to me, it wasn't the right timing, but I was studying to be the holistic nutritional counselor. So that was taking up most of my time. So I passed in 2018 and that's what got me more of a bigger vision of what true health and taking care of our bodies, mind, and spirit is really all about. And I'm hoping to share that with my, my group. So this is exciting what's happening here. So Jessica, you actually have formal training as a traditional nutritionist. Is that how you would describe it to people? Yes, yes. And you grew up here on the island of Molokai? Yes, I grew up here, born and raised here, yes. So basically you have this, like you mentioned, sure you have some other bloodlines that are mingled in your, your background, but you're mostly Native Hawaiian, you grew up here on the island, and you're basically wanting to give back some of the things that you learned. Yes, definitely want to give back because my my history, my family history, like my mom passed at the young age, at 56, just um, 2013, foreign, foreign cancer, chemo, the whole works. And and then her dad also passed away at a young age, and her mom is still living. And then my dad is on a high blood pressure family. And they also died at a, not at a young age, but maybe in their 70s. And both of their parents are gone. My dad is having several high blood pressure and especially after my mom passed he had slight strokes like three to three slight strokes and 
with our cultural and with him being my dad, yeah, it's it's hard to break through the the that barrier of trying to share with them what I have learned. Like, hey, you should try this or that. But yeah, so I can only talk so much. But I'm willing to show it through this group and improve it and and share with other people so that we could get off to a better start on healthier lifestyle living. This is tremendous. I think one of the things that's so unique about this program is I've worked with many lifestyle programs throughout the the mainland, in other places, in the world even, and I don't think I've ever seen one that has as good a follow-up program. So you, Jessica, are, are they calling you a team leader, or what is the official title you have? I'm being their health coach for now. That's my title, health coach. Okay, so you're a health coach for a group of what, four other people? Yes, four other people, yes. So there's maybe a dozen people in this program totally. There's three health coaches. You're one of them. Yes. And what you're doing is you're kind of bonding with these people. Are they all new to you, or did you know all these folks before? Yes, I have known all these people before. They're in my community, and I like um, Mike R.C. He he literally, um, my, my parents were good friends with his parents, so we all used to mingle. Um, Auntie Tracy Howell used to work with her in some of my, some of our workouts classes I used to do way back, like 10 years ago. So yeah. And then recently getting to know Auntie Bridget really, cause she used to work a lot. And now that she's retired, I got to know her a little bit more. So yeah, it's about a, a little mix of, new kind of new to me and some already new but they're familiar faces definitely okay so we're basically in addition to doing our uh, recordings here we're actually uh, in the midst like i said of the rainy season and they've just made an announcement that they're needing some uh, tent moving help so uh, i'm trying to figure out if i'm one of the people who should be doing that and step away from the interview for a minute and I've got some of the team. Lonnie is shaking her head no. She's saying keep keep doing the radio interview. So we're going to keep uh, moving forward with this. And just to kind of give you a little bit of a, of a sense for where we're at, if you haven't heard any of the other interviews, we're in a multi-purpose classroom. It's really the only uh, usable enclosed building for the public on this property. And so a lot happens in this building. There is kind of a makeshift office where the, the leaders of the program are. There is cooking facilities in here. There's tables where various team members are mingling and talking and planning together. Jessica and I are sitting at the back of the room, and we're discussing really just how amazing this program is. So we're speaking about this element of continuity, this follow-up. So other programs throughout the country, throughout the world, they'll bring people together, but they often don't have a structured plan for follow-up. Even if they do, it may be calling people up on the phone. But you've got a real definite plan. After this one-week intensive, what are you specifically going to be doing with the four people in your small group? I will be following up with them. Either will be every day 
just a、um, simple chat, just to uplift them on how they're doing on the day. But it would include a one once a week cooking class for like、um, an hour and a half of demonstrating a more plant-based eating styles and. And also exercises and, and and stretches and also checking up on them and making sure that they have one separate from us meeting of are they adding more exercises within their schedule and、uh, in their daily lives. So that will be my follow up, and I'm I'm really grateful for this because I think it's huge, hugely important. For us to follow up、um, with with after this program, just to make sure that they are not just left with a limb. So I'm I'm super stoked with the follow up. I, I think it's especially exciting because we see people here. This is what the fifth or sixth day of the program,、yes. and folks are excited. Individuals are, are have gotten off their insulin. They're Dropping their other medications, yes. yes, they're feeling better. They're getting excited about a lifestyle. But a lot of times, people will come away to a program. They'll be isolated from the temptations of their normal routine. But then they're back in the thick of things, and there's no one there to support them. But you're right there. And Molokai, I've learned, is not necessarily a big island, is it? No, it's not. It's 37 miles long. And ten miles wide, so it's really nowhere. <laughs> now, now I understand your team that you're the coach for was chosen because they're geographically close to where you live. How far do you live from these individuals, like by by car? Oh, it's not a mile. All of them are within a mile or so. I know where they all live. I mean, this is really crazy. Okay, so you're basically. Although you might not have the title, a lot of people would say you're a community health worker. Have, have you ever heard them use that term for what you're doing? No, I didn't. So community health workers throughout the world often are given、uh, a skill set where they can support people in their community. They might not have the official title of health coach or nutritionist, but they do a lot of those roles, and so. Uh, whether or not anyone's ever given you that label, as I look at what you folks are doing, you're very much community health workers. You may not be working with a whole community or a whole group, but you're working with selected individuals in your community, right? Yes, yes. Now I understand that in addition to the weekly meetings and the daily support that you'll be giving your group, all three of the groups. Are going to come together periodically. How does that work? Yes. So what what we are also going to do is do、uh, every second Sundays of every month we come together and someone will pick a dish that they want to prepare that's plant based and we、um, we will put it up on our page. They would、um, the other participants that have participated before, participated before. They will comment in and share that they can bring the certain ingredients in the the list of the ingredients, and they'll bring it to the class. And we would gather at one particular area, it could be their home or a special place. Like a halal that has a kitchen, we'll come together, bring the ingredients together, and then put this all together, 
and learn how to prepare that particular meal that that person would um, would have for that particular day. I mean, this is such an amazing concept. So you do have once a week a cooking class where you're the instructor. Is that safe to, to say? Yes, yes. But this is different. So this is, you may or one of the other team members may have prepared this a recipe before, but you're not going to to cook it and demonstrate it, you're going to bring all these 12 people together and they're going to cook it together for the first time. Yes, yes, that's true. I, I don't know if I've heard this concept before. Have you guys been doing this before or is this a new idea? No, they've been doing this before. Mm-hmm. But with this a particular seven-day thing, this is way different and um, of um, how we're doing this, a little bit different, a, a longer but yet with the same concept. Now, one of the questions I have to ask, and I I may have some bias in asking it, and you can just be honest with me. So those who've heard some of the other interviews from this program realize that when Mercy was organizing it, Mercy Riddy, the organizer, she decided to use my book, The Methuselah Factor. And I've been giving some lectures that relate to those themes that book has daily assignments in it for a 30-day program. Just being honest, has that helped you as a health coach, or do you think it's been a distraction? You had other agendas that you'd like to accomplish? And it's okay to be honest because we're trying to see what works and what doesn't. That was a huge help because it really identified of what to do as a practical of a day-to-day regimen for 30 days, I mean. So it was very, very helpful, no distractions, but it was also helpful and awakening at the same time of knowing that, okay, we have something, a guideline to follow. And that's, that's what we, we wanted to try to emphasize with this group especially. So it's good to do the follow-up. Well, tremendous. I'm glad that's being helpful to you. And hopefully at the end of a month, you'll still have the same conclusion. And if not, I'm interested in knowing what we can do better. What a lot of people don't know about that book, I know I shared it in our class, but that 30-day program actually grew out of my work with Native Americans, trying to come up with something that was simpler on a day-to-day basis that tribes could use because I was working with tribes who had concerns with diabetes and high blood pressure. We're stepping away just for a minute. We're going to come back with more from Molokai, things that you can do to make a difference in your own life, words of inspiration from others making lifestyle changes and going on that journey. Stay tuned for more. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. We'll be right back after this. This is Betty White. I know you don't need one more thing to worry about, but listen. High blood pressure can cause kidney damage, blindness, heart attack, stroke. And you can have high blood pressure even if you feel all right. One in seven adults has it, but it's easy to get your blood pressure checked, and you can treat it if it is too high. So don't worry about it. Don't ignore it. Just see your doctor and check it out. For your free booklet, visit the Will Rogers Institute at wrinstitute.org and find us on Facebook and Twitter.
Emergency medical unit, respond to 102 Maple Avenue, possible stroke victim. When stroke occurs, you have 60 minutes to win or lose the race of your life. There are new treatments, but you must get to a hospital fast. If you suddenly feel weakness on one side, have trouble speaking, walking, or seeing, it could be a stroke. Call 911. Get to a hospital. Because how you spend the next 60 minutes could determine how you spend the rest of your life. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders in Stroke. If you receive disability benefits, keeping Social Security informed is key. Keeping us informed minimizes the chance that we learn about something later that could negatively affect your benefits. That's the surprise no one wants because it creates overpayments that you must repay, disrupts payments, and can even jeopardize your entitlement to Social Security benefits. Learn more about reporting responsibilities for people working and receiving disability or SSI benefits by reading our online publications, Working While Disabled, How We Can Help, and How Work Affects Your Benefits at www.socialsecurity.gov pubs. Some changes can be reported online at www.socialsecurity.gov. You can also notify us at 1-800-772-1213 or contact your local Social Security office. Our goal at Social Security is to pay you the right amount on time every month. With your cooperation to keep us informed of changes, the likelihood of any unpleasant surprises that could derail your benefits will be greatly minimized. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're recording another segment on the island of Molokai. We're talking with people who are going through a seven-day intensive lifestyle change program. Sitting across from me is Jessica. Jessica has roots right here on Molokai, born and raised here, Jessica Kalave Oswald. She is not just a participant, but she's also a health coach supporting four other participants as they go through this one-week program and then following up with them over a period of 30 days and then beyond. Jessica, tell us a little bit about your own health journey. What kind of things in your life got you to the point where you said, I want to take a special interest in my health. Oh, man. It goes back to really young. I ended up developing a little bit of stretch marks at the age of nine. And I used to always walk to Hula. And so I stopped in a um, natural food store and asked them about that, what causes it. And they told me soda. And I was like, okay, that's one thing I'm taking off my list. So I always took that off my list. But as I was growing up, I always would go ask people, whoever had, like, things that was growing on their trees that I knew that was edible, that was ripe and was falling. I always would ask people, and I always would come home with a bunch of stuff, make all kind of tamarind with soy sugar, like, stuff that was, you know, really bad, but I didn't know. But I knew at a very young age, now I look back, that I... I had the love of foraging more light. And I still carried it out through my, my years, even with my kids. I would always forage. I would always gather plums when the season, whenever there are seasons. I would always mash that up and make a, a treat for us. So all the kids knew that I, I, I always um, end up cooking with, not cooking, but, you know, play, pretend to play because we didn't have, like, cell phones or 
um, Nintendo was, you know, only one family had it because they could afford it. We couldn't afford it. Like, barely we had a TV, you know, so we would always be outside. I would make patties, mud patties, and I'll gather all kinds of plants and put it together. I even, like, always would look for what would be a natural remedy for certain, certain cuts and... I mean, I had this. So we're talking about from a young age. You had an interest in the land. You grew up here on Molokai, and you're learning these traditional remedies from your neighbors, from your family. So were you a healthy person growing up? I was kind of health conscious, but a little bit. A little bit on the healthy side, yeah. I always would try my best to reach for those apples, oranges. I would literally be playing out young i'll be like carrots helps your eyes so i'll be walking around the only kid playing in the neighborhood with a big carrot and eating it and they're like what are you eating i was like carrot ew gross and i'm like well it's gonna help my eyesight so tough <laughs> good for you now you were telling me before we did this segment that at one point you got really concerned about your health and it motivated you to start walking, I mean, what some people would say, I mean, really long distances. What was uh, behind that? Uh, that was just to session pounds, get my numbers on right, because I was, you know, trying almost borderline being diabetic. So I needed to make a, a change. And the doctor said, just walk and eat a little bit healthier. Well, you th- they won't tell you what healthy foods to eat. So... I just was like, okay, exercise, I can do that. So I would um, team up with another friend, and we would um, meet at her house. So I'll ride my bike from my house. It would be a two-mile ride to her house. Then I'll walk from her house all the way to the airport, and, and I'm back home. So for those who don't know the geography of Molokai or where you live or where your friend lived, how far was it from your friend's place to the airport? How far were you walking? Say round trip. Round trip would be about eight and a half miles. So this is a serious walk, and you were doing that every day? Um, just on the, um, on just one day a week. Okay, so you're getting healthier, and then you found yourself doing other activities in the community. I've heard, too, is it true you're a swimmer? Yeah, I uh, picked it up when my, I was homeschooling my kids. I, you know, regularly swam, but I didn't know how to properly swim. So when I was homeschooling the kids, I had this um, an athlete guy, I was like, hey, can I train you? And I was like, yeah. I was like, me? He's like, I'm a swim coach, blah, 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 for UH Manure. And I can help you with how to properly swim. So I was like, okay. So I did some laps for him. He was like, man, you could have been one serious athlete. And I looked at him, I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> because I'm heavy, heavy set up and, you know, a little slimmer down, but... Yeah, so I was like, okay, so he taught me how to properly swim, and then that's when the snowball became to effect of, oh, I could possibly do this. And you went from a person who loved the water, grew up kind of swimming, but not any yeah. having any great technique. Oh, yes, totally. I mean, my mom surfed, and she actually introduced me to windsurfing at, the, at a young age also. So I would be the only one out of a family of five my mom would take to go windsurf. My other brothers would go windsurfing, and I had a younger sister. So I'm like the f- number four out of five, and I would windsurf. And I used to love being in the ocean, 
I really loved it. And then when I got um, my kids, when I had my last daughter, and it was right around when I had a 10-year reunion from graduating, my classmates told me to come paddle. And I was like, what? And I haven't paddled since high school. So I was like, okay. I was like, I got three kids I got to tag along with me. Now, so for folks on the mainland, if you talk about paddling, this is like one of these big ocean-going canoes, or yes. what is that? Yes, it's an outrigger canoe that um, we need six people to be in the boat with a paddle to to make the boat move, or one person. It depends on your skills. <laughs> well, what I love about your story is I'm hearing all these things. You, you were not you know, all that serious a swimmer, and then someone just comes up to you, gives you lessons, and you start swimming more seriously. Now people are, you know, getting you back into paddling. So you're someone who it seems like when there's opportunities to learn or to do something, you've taken those opportunities throughout your life, haven't you? Yes, yes, totally I have. And do I understand correctly now that you're even a swim coach at this point? Yes, yes I am for um, Maui Dolphins here. It's a satellite from... Maui. Pukalani Maui is the official. My head coach is Malcolm, and we, we brought it here to Molokai. So I had to get lifeguard certifications, go to the training through USA Swimming, and lo- learn the protocols through there. Once I pass all of that, then I take a test, and then if I pass, I become a USA certified swim coach. And you did that? Yes, I did that. Back in October... Yeah, back in 2012, like towards the um, ending summer months, I've done that. And then by October 2012 is when we open up the doors to Molokai to offer uh, properly swim lessons to people. I I love your story because there's so many people that are out there that say, oh, if I just didn't have so many responsibilities, if I wasn't working, if I wasn't such a busy mother, I would do so much more. But you're a mother, you have uh, an infant, I mean, less than one year old, you've got other kids at home. How big is your family? I have, so Kingston is a number four, my surprise. I have three older ones. One just got married this past year. And my son is going to be graduating this June. And my youngest is 15 and will be turning 16 this March. So that's the gap between her and Kingston. One last question for you. How has it been for you as a mother? You're actually caring for him. You're nursing him while he's here. Has this been pretty challenging for you? Yes, yes, it has been challenging and thankful at the same time with everybody else um, putting their hands in to help and being that whole ohana system of taking care of each other and it's really nice it's so nice so you don't have regrets about joining the program and committing to do all this follow-up well to be honest before i came here i was like is this the right thing because yes my concern was my son and at the same time my energy with with the team and separating them too and i was like i can't do that and so i was like well he's gonna just be part of my hip and we're going to just do this together because I just needed to get out of a, a comfort zone. So this is me out of my comfort zone and powering through the challenges. Well, I love that smile. I know folks may not appreciate it on the radio, but Jessica, you're an inspiration. Thank you for your commitment to your own health, 
to these uh, team members that you're working with as a health coach. Any final comments or encouragements? Maybe someone who's listening today, they're wondering, could we do something in our tribe, in our community? Maybe someone's wondering about making lifestyle changes themselves. Do you have any messages for our listeners? Do it. Take the time to try it out. Try Dr. DeRose's 30-day lifestyle change, his book, The Metatusula Factor. Get a book because it's worth it. It's really worth it. And I have literally felt changes in my life. I mean, my son is strong, healthy, and yeah, people are amazed at him. They're wondering what he's eating. And my kids will say, sweet potato, boy, and apples, pears. I mean, just now that he's about 10 months, but a lot of sweet potato, root vegetables, celery. Yes, that's what he eats on the side besides breast milk. So I encourage you guys to get a book and start your 30-day journey to better health and better you. Thanks so much, Jessica. Continued success to you. Thank you. Thank you. And aloha and God bless. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. We will be back with more right after this. American Indian Living will continue in a moment. If you have questions or comments about today's pre-recorded broadcast, please call 1-800-775-HOPE. That's 1-800-775-4673. So, you want to be a hero. Here are some ways to get the job. Hunt down that killer shark. Or run into a burning house to save a kitten. Luckily, there's an easier way to become a hero. Call 911 if you see someone experiencing the symptoms of stroke. Sudden weakness on one side or trouble speaking, walking, or seeing. Stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. You'll be a real hero. A message from the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke. Can you guess what's going on here? It's kids getting fit. Studies show that children and teens who get at least 60 minutes of physical activity a day reduce the risk of obesity, heart disease, anxiety, and increase their overall mood. So whether it's around your neighborhood or at school, just get out and play. For your free booklet, visit WRInstitute.org or call toll-free 877-957-7575 and find us on Facebook and Twitter. The Will Rogers Institute since 1936. My name is Tom Thornton. And my name is Cindy Thornton. We're retired, and this is how we live United. We decided to volunteer with United Way at our community free health clinic. United Way is how we contribute. Because we know our time and money are going to the right places. Judging by the thank yous we get at the clinic, I'd say we're doing the right thing with our retirement, too. We're Tom and Cindy Thornton. We volunteer at our community free health clinic. We don't just wear the shirt. We live it. Give, advocate, volunteer, live United. Go to liveunited.org. Brought to you by United Way and the Ad Council. Diabetes affects more than 29 million Americans. If left untreated, diabetes can lead to serious health problems such as heart disease, stroke, blindness, and kidney disease. Your family's health history can be an important factor in determining your risk of developing diabetes. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you and your family. Do all you can to prevent or delay the onset of type 2 diabetes. Visit yourdiabetesinfo.org to learn more. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE. 
1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. You are back with Dr. David DeRose. I'm actually in my studios back on the mainland. We're stepping away from our interviews in Molokai to give some perspective. And the perspective that I want to share with you is the fact that what's happening in Molokai, as far as people connecting with their indigenous roots using natural lifestyle-based strategies, is not just something that's time-honored among First Nation peoples. It is something that is getting increasingly focused on as far as the mainstream medical establishment. To help us see that bigger picture is Dr. Seth Baum. Seth, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you. It is great to be here. Seth, as we're launching into this important topic, help our listeners learn a little bit about your background. I'm the immediate past president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. And although I started in the interventional world and electrophysiology world and did that for almost a decade, in 99, I went completely into cardiovascular disease prevention, which is where I've remained since that time. So, Seth, interventional cardiology, that's all that high-tech stuff, the dye studies of the heart, the procedures, that whole business. Correct. After doing that for a long period of time, it, it really became pretty obvious to me that uh, I needed to do whatever I could to try to prevent the disease from emerging in the first place. So that's where I've been for the last 20 years. And, and, and I think it's, frankly, the most important part of, of cardiovascular medicine. Seth, this is such exciting stuff. In the previous segments on this radio show, I've been talking with folks on the island of Molokai, uh, actually specifically one person who doesn't have uh, a huge amount of high-tech training. But I was just inspired by this woman, woman by the name of Jessica, because even though she doesn't have uh, the MD degree, she doesn't have all those specializations, she's making an impact getting people back to these simple lifestyle practices that indigenous peoples have, have held in high esteem for, for centuries. If we're trying to understand this topic better, for people throughout Indian country and beyond, where do we need to start to really appreciate why preventive cardiology is so important today? I'd start with the fact that uh, even though we have all of those very costly, high-tech, cutting-edge procedures that are very valuable, I, I'm not, I'm not uh, intending to denigrate them at all. I think they're very valuable and necessary. We also still have heart disease being the number one cause of death in the United States, and that uh, is the case with the American Indians as well. And we have this problem with obesity and with diabetes. Again, the diabetes issue uh, very prevalent uh, among uh, uh, American Indians. So it's something that, that we have to confront. There, there are different types of, of prevention. You know, There's something called primordial prevention, which is preventing a risk factor from even emerging in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that, to me, is the most important thing. And that happens in youth, at younger ages. Uh, we don't start smoking. We don't become overweight. We continue our exercise. So, so all those things, all those practices have to occur there. But unfortunately, most of us do end up developing some risk factors, and that's where we then develop some subclinical disease, meaning you've not had an event yet, not a stroke or a heart attack, but you're at risk. And then we have to attack those risk factors. Frankly, if you do have an event, you're at even higher risk for another stroke or another heart attack or another bypass or stent. And at that point, boy, do we need to be aggressive with risk reduction. So, Seth, when we're talking about aggressive risk reduction, I can think of 
what I have seen in, in Molokai just a little while ago and what we've been featuring on this show over the last several segments, radically changing lifestyle, making differences to reverse risk factors. But I know some people, when they talk about aggressive prevention, they're talking about using medication therapy or maybe adding other natural therapies. How do you put all this stuff together? Uh, a, a great question. So in the late 90s, when I transitioned from, let's call it more allopathic, the, the most allopathic medicine of you know, being in a lab to prevention, you know, which is, has a little more holistic, if you will, flavor to it, I went through a period of practicing integrative cardiology. And that's really what you're mm-hmm. talking about. You're talking about actually mm-hmm. including all of this stuff. So, you know, diet is a foundational aspect of risk factor modification, as is exercise. And, and sometimes supplements are, in my view, are valuable. But if you get to the point where you're a high-risk individual, then oftentimes or most times we need to to use some of our medications, our our prescription drugs, and and that's where people should not refuse or or believe that that that's not an appropriate move. They should should embrace that. Dr. Baum, this is really a powerful message, and I know it resonates with a lot of my listeners. They don't have any, any second thoughts about taking a medication to prevent a cardiovascular event. But the flip side is... Go back with me to the beginning of this show or to the previous shows we've been airing about Molokai and people focused on changing their lifestyle to avoid cardiovascular events. I'll tell you where I have the problem. Give you a practical example. A person spoke with me recently. They had just had a stroke. They were trying to follow a healthy lifestyle, but now when their doctor's talking with them about going on medications, they're saying, no, I just want to follow a healthy lifestyle. Well, the problem was they were doing that and they still had a stroke. Uh, And it didn't seem they were connecting the dots that if they're not changing their lifestyle, just sticking with something that's, quote, good, if it didn't prevent a stroke or a heart attack the first time, why do you think that's going to prevent a second heart attack? Seems like that reasoning is very dangerous. it's not a reasonable course. It's an incredibly dangerous course, and I've seen patients do it and end up uh, in deep trouble. So the, the highest risk person for a stroke or heart attack is one who has already had a stroke or a heart attack. So that second or third event is, is just much more likely. Um, so even though you want that person to change his or her lifestyle, to exercise, to eat better, to lose weight, to manage diabetes better, even though you want all that stuff to occur, you also almost always want to include another agent, another pharmacologic agent, uh, to reduce the risk of a future event. So it's really a bad course of action to, to resist that. So, Dr. Baum, full disclosure for you, for all my listeners, I have spent most of my life helping people get off of medications. But the flip side is, I deal with many people and have dealt with them over the years who will not make the magnitude of lifestyle changes that they need to get their risk as low as it should be, especially, like you said, after they've had a cardiovascular event already. Take it a step further. Some people have just gotten dealt such a bad genetic hand or have other things in the picture that really we don't know anything better than to add some medications to the equation. I know of cases with terribly high cholesterol levels, even in spite of all that a person is doing to get those numbers down naturally. So here's the other part of the story. Some people say, yes, I might consider taking a medication, but it's too expensive. Maybe it's not covered by their plan. Is that really a concern with uh, some of the newer medications? Well, well, some of the newer ones 
you know, may not be, but but typically they, they are covered. But being covered doesn't mean they're covered well or affordable. So let me give you the example of the PCSK9 inhibitors, which is an injectable type of medication that lowers cholesterol that was approved by the FDA the summer of 2015. And there are two of these medicines available. They're, in my view, the most important advance in lipid-lowering therapy in 30 years. They're really good. They're incredibly effective. They lower LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol, in quotes, 60-plus percent. They do it in a very safe fashion. They're very well tolerated. And they're used on, on top of statin therapy. They can also be used as monotherapy, as standalone therapy. So these drugs are released in... in 2015, and I, among other doctors who treat high-risk patients, thought, wow, we have it now. We have a great drug. I prescribed it readily, and 90% or so, maybe even 100% at the beginning, of my patients to whom I prescribed it were rejected or denied by insurance. So why were they denied? Great question. And uh, so I and the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, and then a bunch of other groups, really tried to understand this, published a lot of papers on it, and it became obvious that the insurance companies were establishing barriers to access for these drugs because they were so expensive. So what happened was the insurance companies stated for for a number of years that if only the drugs were priced lower, the patients would be able to access them. So about a year ago, the two drug companies lowered the price 60%. It was dramatic. So now the drug has dropped to $5,850 a year. Okay, that's uh, the list price for the insurance companies. So it's the same price as most of our regular oral drugs that we use. So these drugs are the same price. So in 2020, these drugs are for Medicare. They're coming off specialty tier. And specialty tier was where they've been the whole time, where the patients were responsible for paying maybe up to 30 35% of the drug. And as a consequence a lot of patients abandoned their drug once they got started, okay, which is bad, obviously. Mm-hmm. And it was done mm-hmm. all for financial reasons, all economic. I participated in a paper through the FH Foundation, or Familial Hypercholesterolemia Foundation, which was published in a, a journal called Circulation, a very good journal, demonstrated that, that patients who did this, who abandoned their, their, their medication or who were denied, frankly, to their medication, had a much higher incidence of stroke and heart attack and stents and bypass. Wow. So we don't want that to happen. So we're all excited thinking 2020, they're going to get the drug now. It's going to be categorized as preferred. So the copay for the patient should be $50, $70 a month, something like that. Well, mm-hmm. it turns out that probably 70% uh, and even more in some cases of the insurance companies have decided not to categorize the drugs as preferred. Instead, they're using the the non-preferred status, which means that the copay can be up to 50%. So we're talking 2500 a year now? Correct, or more, yeah, three, almost 3000 So, again, becoming unaffordable. So we need people to call the congressmen, to call their senators, call the insurance commissioners of their state and say this is not fair because the insurance companies can change and they can go to preferred if they get enough feedback. So, Dr. Baum, some of our listeners, of course, listening throughout Indian country, they're covered by tribal programs. The message to them, make sure that there's adequate coverage provision for these medications in their tribal programs. But many others are listening. They may not be Native, or they may be Native and not a member of a federally recognized tribe. 
could be a host of reasons. They may be very concerned about some of these issues with Medicare, Medicaid, and other third-party payers. They really need to be aware of this. Tell us why this is so important to you to get the message out to Indian country. The American Indian population and the Alaskan Native population need to understand that they are particularly at risk here because there's such a high incidence of diabetes and overweight and heart disease and premature death from heart disease in in these populations. Remember that the higher risk you are, the better the drugs are for you, the better they are in terms of lowering your risk. So the, the, the population with the greatest benefit from any therapeutic is going to be the highest risk population. And that's what this population is. So they need to have a very loud voice here. And, and I would also say that the patient's voice is always the loudest. So when a patient starts saying this is not fair, people actually listen. Dr. Baum, thank you so much for sharing your passion on this subject. Our focus today really is lifestyle, and we'll be coming back to those issues from Molokai. But important message, sometimes you get into a situation where lifestyle is simply not enough. Don't neglect to take advantage of other resources and do your best to advocate to make sure those resources are available to you and those you love. We'll be back with more, more important messages that will take us right back to the heart of indigenous peoples on the island of Molokai. Stay tuned for our final segment. I'm Dr. DeRose. Today's broadcast has been pre-recorded. However, if you have questions about today's show or would like further information, please call one 800 775 hope that's 1-800-775-4673 we'll be right back after this one day i'll teach chemistry to kids i'm going to be an architect my dream is to be a chef at the u.s department of education's office of federal student aid we provide more than 150 billion dollars each year in grants loans and work study funds making higher education possible for anyone at any stage of life i can go back to college I can change careers. I can make a difference. Federal Student Aid, proud sponsor of the American Mind. Learn more about money for college at studentaid.gov. Diabetes is a serious disease that runs in families. If your parents or siblings have type 2 diabetes, you have a greater chance of getting the disease. If you're African American, Hispanic, or Latino, American Indian, Alaska Native, Asian American, Native Hawaiian, or Pacific Islander, you also have a higher chance of developing the disease. The National Diabetes Education Program wants to help you understand your risk. Visit the NDEP website at yourdiabetesinfo.org for diabetes prevention tools, including the Family Health History Quiz. It started off as a normal day. I felt fine when I arrived at the plant. Ruth Junius's life was about to change. Then I dropped my keys. They kept slipping out of my hand. My arm felt numb. A co-worker asked me if I was okay, and I couldn't speak. I started to get scared. Ruth was having a stroke. People around her weren't sure what to do. They thought I should go home or lie down, but I knew something was very wrong. I wrote 911 on a piece of paper with my other hand, and someone called for me. Because everyone acted quickly, doctors at the hospital were able to give Ruth treatment that started to reverse the symptoms. Within a few minutes, I was talking again. I didn't know a thing about stroke before I had one. Now I make sure that my friends and family know all the signs of stroke so they'll get help fast if they need it. No stroke. Know the signs. Act in time. Call 1-800-352-9424 for more information. 
Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, National Institutes of Health. You're listening to Dr. David DeRose on American Indian Living. Your comments and questions are welcome. Call now at 1-800-775-HOPE, 1-800-775-4673. Here again is Dr. DeRose. Welcome back to American Indian Living. I'm Dr. David DeRose. We're continuing a series of programs from a place called Keabanui on the island of Molokai in the Hawaiian Islands. We are here as part of a seven-day intensive lifestyle change program. And we're in this multi-purpose educational center. Uh, it serves as a classroom, but right now, more than anything, it's serving as a meeting place. Some of the guests are uh, just kind of relaxing, visiting together, journaling. But we've got a number of the members of the team, as well as a number of the participants who are working together, preparing a meal. So we're going to try to interview some of them as they're in the midst of uh, working. I'm standing by a table where there is a bunch of diced tomatoes, and Lorene is one of the people uh, involved in this process. Lorene, you've been heading up a lot of the cooking, haven't you? Yes. Uh, I've been in charge of the breakfasts for the week. And if you just want uh, some feedback from uh, an unbiased eater, that's me, I've really enjoyed the good work you've been doing, and I've heard that that's not a uh, an isolated assessment of your cooking. In other words, a lot of people have liked the meals. Uh, yes, uh, I've been very pleased that the food came out delicious, that they enjoyed it, uh, especially since some of the products here are, are not readily available like we have in Honolulu. I'm just happy that they enjoy the food, and it's something that, that they can uh, make when they go home after the program. So you've been working with this uh, program from the beginning this week, but have you been involved with doing similar programs in the past? Uh, no, I have not, but I've uh, been part of uh, another program like this called Healing Rain that uh, I've been in charge of the kitchen helping with vegan or plant-based foods, and the program is very similar to this one. Now, you are native Hawaiian, but you're not from uh, Molokai, is that correct? Yes. And what what island are you from? I'm from the island of Oahu, which is the main island uh, for the state of Hawaii. So from your standpoint, Lorraine, this is your first experience working with this particular program. You've got all these people in the, quote, kitchen together. It's not a formal kitchen, but it's a makeshift kitchen. You've had a lot of helpers. What do you think of this whole system where you have guests and staff working together on the meals? I like it because it brings everybody together. Um, it's like a family. We work together. We we sleep together. We play together, and we learn together. And so it brings the the concept of uh, what we call ohana or family. So I, I think it's a great program, and it's a great way that everyone works together rather than somebody hired in the other one teacher and you're just listening to the lectures or the the lessons. Thank you, Lorraine. It's exciting uh, just seeing this whole concept coming together. I'm just traveling around the kitchen a little bit because we've got some other folks here preparing things. Now, not all of them might be willing to be interviewed for this uh, segment. I'm coming over to a, a table now that has uh, an electric, I guess you'd call that a hot plate, and uh, a couple of the participants are here. I don't know if any of them are, are willing to be interviewed about how they're finding uh, a lifestyle program where they're being put to work. So, Becky, uh, tell us a little bit about how you ended up here. 
Uh, well, I, as I get older, my numbers are creeping up, my, and I wanted to be healthier. So uh, the Community Health Center started this series of cooking demonstrations called Ipono. Pono means the right balance. So healthy, right balance. So I went to a couple of those and talked to Mercy, and then someone told me about uh, this camp. So I signed up for the camp and tried it, and so far I'm loving it. It's great. And you're pretty well uh, far through it. We're in our the home stretch, just a few more days remaining, right? Yes, uh, tomorrow, and then we go home Sunday uh, Sunday morning. So, Becky, you have deep roots on Molokai. Is that safe to say? Well, I've been here about 42 years. My husband was the dentist here for about 40 years, and he's originally from Kauai, but he was recruited to come to Molokai when they didn't have a dentist back then. Um, so a group got together and recruited him to come to Molokai, and he liked it because he said it was like Kauai was when he was growing up. Mm. And Kauai has turned very busy now, very tourist-oriented. Mm-hmm. So, um, And then I met him, and then I came here. So are you, were you born in the Hawaiian Islands yourself? No, I was born, I grew up in Leavenworth, Washington. Okay. Yeah, which is another small town that has turned tourist. So many of the same issues uh, apply, I think, for the two places. So one of the things that's interesting to me about this program, Becky, is a lot of times when I work with lifestyle centers, whether it's in the U.S. or in other places, a lot of the main cooking is done by trained staff. Here, you as a participant have been active, and you're right now, as I'm standing here by you, you're uh, working with some kidney beans, other people are dicing onions, Uh, someone else has got uh, cucumber that's all sliced up. How do you like this uh, dimension where you're actively involved with a lot of the program elements? Well, I've been a teacher for 40 years, and I know that you learn best by doing. Mm-hmm. So if you watch someone, it's hard to remember everything. If you do it, you're going to remember it. So I'm totally for this kind of thing. I think it's it would be less beneficial if someone else did all the cooking. I think it's much, much more beneficial if we chip in and learn how to do it and I mean, you think you know how the salad is, and then you come and you say, now, how do I chop the cucumber? How big should it be? How much onion? How much seasoning? And so uh, I think you learn much more this way. Well, I think that's tremendous. Uh, the other question that a lot of folks uh, have had, you know, if they're thinking about coming to a lifestyle program, is is it really worth taking the time off and the expense? Now, I know this program has been pretty heavily subsidized. It's incredibly reasonable. So I'm assuming the price was not a big hurdle for you? Oh, no. I researched different ones on the mainland just to see, and they're thousands of dollars. Uh-huh. This one is like nothing. I mean, it's ex- it's extremely, extremely affordable. And I think sometimes we on Molokai, we get spoiled because people don't want to come because it's raining or whatever. But that's just part of the program. I mean, part of the experience, really. It's in a beautiful place. We get to take our walks in a gorgeous environment. Um, so I think it's all good. Um, I've been trying to go to this lifestyle for uh, several years now, so it's not totally new. But it's learning how to cook this way and how to think of shopping this way that is difficult. I mean, it's really easy to fall back into your old habits. So something like this where you're immersed in it and you think about it and you, you get in that habit, I think is, is, uh, is really good for me. And I've, I've really enjoyed that part of it, yeah. Very good. And I've noticed that one of the other challenges here on Molokai 
is just the availability of food. I, a number of times we've heard during the program people saying things like, well, we were going to have something, but the barge hasn't come in yet with these foods. Tell the folks who are listening a little bit about why so many people are talking about a barge coming to the island. Well, Molokai is a small island with uh, like 7,000 people or so, and the barge comes twice a week, except on holidays or when the weather is bad, and it brings in most of our food. Uh, and when it doesn't come, then you, you don't have a lot of options. But I think just living on Molokai, you have to learn to adapt with everything. You know, you can go at any time and think, oh, I'll use milk, and there's no milk. Mm-hmm. So you have to just learn to roll with it and figure out something else. I think it fosters creativity. <laughs> okay, I appreciate that spirit. I have not been in the grocery store here, but I've heard a number of people saying, well, you know, if the barge doesn't come in on time, then all the shelves are empty and there's nothing you can obtain. And uh, some have joked about some of the limited options and how you guys have been stretching it in the kitchen. But I, by and large, we've eaten very well here. At least that's my assessment. Yes, very well. And I think what other people don't understand is it's a small place. There's basically two uh, grocery stores that are both mom-and-pop organizations. It's not like where you walk into Safeway and it's this huge place with you know, all the produce you can possibly think of. We walk in and there's one half of an aisle of the four different aisles that is wow. devoted to produce. Wow. So it's not hard <laughs> to have a shortage of a particular item. Many of our Native American listeners may be on a reservation in a rural location. They're listening to this program and they're asking the question, well, some of the organizers have said this is something that is reproducible. It could be used somewhere else. What do you think as a participant? Do you think this kind of model could work in other rural communities? Absolutely. I think it would be wonderful to have it in as many different rural communities as possible. I think the smallness of the group, I think the personalization, knowing people, um, they have a lot of uh, follow-up support planned. I think that's important. Uh, The more you can get your community to go down a certain way, the more uh, support you have for each other, the more likely we'll all change together. Because it's not just a personal change. Uh, I have noticed since we started this that more things are available in the grocery stores. You can get more of the items that five years ago you couldn't get. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I think the more people that are into this and ask for things and, and uh, go that route, the more available things will become. Tremendous. Thanks for taking time. Let me pull you away from some of the cooking duties. No problem. I missed the onions. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's about all the time we've got in today's program. Dr. David DeRose back at my studios on the mainland. Hopefully today's show has inspired you to make a difference in your community, to take some initiative and see what you can do to help reconnect with those traditional values that can help turn back the clock on lifestyle diseases. For all of us at American Indian Living, I'm Dr. David DeRose, as always, wishing you the very best of health. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.